Welcome to the Roots Podcast, brought to you from the Training and Equipping Ministry of Chanctonbury, exploring revival, church, leadership and culture. Discover more about our community at chanctonbury.org.uk. Now if you look at the notes, I've written down a summary of what I think the Bible portrays which picks up many of the threads that we've all referenced. Well, the Bible portrays from front to back is the point of life, the goal, the the purpose of it from God's perspective. An eternal God, so we're defining that, uncreated in his very nature, an eternal God desires to give to his son a co-ruler to reign with him in creation in authority, power and glory in a union between heaven and earth forever and ever displaying the nature and purposes of God in all realms for all ages. An eternal God desires to give to his son a co-ruler to reign with him in creation. Just think about that for a minute. The eternal, not made God decides to make something to be joined together as a co-ruler with his son for the purpose of reigning in creation in authority, power and glory in a space where the heavens and the earth are united, where they come together in a union forever and ever, that every eye, angelic, demonic, animal, human, every eye might know, having seen in this union and in this uh, coming together, the nature and purposes of God in all realms for all ages. Okay? Now, how does this connect with the kingdom of God? Well, it connects because there's a few verbs in there about reigning, about displaying, about authority and power and glory. We've got the son of an eternal God mentioned. And we've got something about heaven and earth. So we're going to make some connections with this. And our next question really, and you should find some Bible references, and we're going to track through um, most of these, perhaps not all, um, track through most of these now. How does this connect, first of all, with Jesus of Nazareth? In terms of reigning and ruling... Jesus of Nazareth seemed to have a primary theme of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God mentioned in Mark's gospel, kingdom of God mentioned in Luke's gospel, and kingdom of heaven mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven and interchangeably with the kingdom of God. John has a slightly different vibe, and we're going to get into that in two weeks' time, in our module on knowing God as Father. But we're going to see some connections with that, um, I hope, uh, today. So let's, let's look, first of all, at Mark chapter 1. And again, someone might say to you, you know, why in this church do we talk about the kingdom of God? You know, why is that a central theme? Out of all the other themes, out of the end of the world, or out of... Salvation by faith alone, or out of relationship, you know, and all of that. Why is the kingdom of God something that we talk about? Why am I introducing it on our very first day as an underpinning framework for all of our training and equipping through the next 10 months? Well, the simple reason is because it was a central theme for Jesus. So if it's a central theme for him, then we should pay attention to why it should be a central theme for us. 
Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 14. I hope you've got your Bibles. We're going to tour right the way through and you should have all the references there on the notes. Um, But I'll read them out if you haven't. We're going to start with Mark's Gospel because it's uh, the earliest New Testament uh, book, if you like, or, um, or Gospel. It's kind of the first one and um, the first one to sort of come into an agreed circulation. So it's good to look at it as, as being an originator or primary first source of where we would go. And Mark, in his Gospel, introduces Jesus um, without any of the Christmas stuff. He introduces uh, John the Baptist, who is going to prepare the way for Jesus. But then we find on verse 14, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee. And what did he do? He proclaimed the good news of God. Verse 15, what does the good news of God sound like? The time is fulfilled. Here's here's the thing. The kingdom of God has come near. Or some of your Bibles might say is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus is proclaiming the good news and his proclamation is the kingdom of God is is at hand. It's within reach. It's come near. The kingdom of God. Of God. Repent and believe in the good news. Let's see this cashed out in Luke. We're going to turn over to Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just launched his ministry again. Um, Earlier in chapter 4, he's been tempted. He begins his ministry again, verse 14. He goes into Nazareth. He stirs up the hate by claiming Isaiah 61. Verse uh, 42 of Luke chapter 4, at daybreak he departed and went to a deserted place. Everybody was looking for him, the crowds were, and when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. Wouldn't you? If Jesus was amongst us, you know. We finished church at about five to one on Sunday and everyone stayed around for about half an hour. Now why is that? It wasn't the quality of the coffee because that wasn't being served then. We stay around because you can just feel he's amongst us. We suddenly love each other more than we did 90 minutes ago. You know, because he's here. When he's, when he's around us, we, we don't want him to go. We love him. And what he does just brings us life. Verse 43, but Jesus said to them, I must proclaim what? The good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent For this purpose. So the reason we talk about the kingdom of God in this church is because Jesus talked about it. And I want straight lines drawn from our vision and mission to Jesus Christ himself. So again, he's he's trying to preach um, and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, Verse 44, so he's continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. Let's turn back now to Matthew chapter 4. point I'm just showing you is that this is a central message of Jesus and a takeaway would be to just go through Matthew, Mark and Luke and just begin to just read how much the kingdom of God is not only proclaimed but also what its impact is. Again Matthew 4 we've got the temptation of Jesus then we come to verse 12 and Jesus begins his ministry. Now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist Um, who was announcing him at the beginning of Mark, that John had been arrested. He withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now let's notice for a minute, straight away Matthew's pointing back 
and we're going to go back in just a few moments. Matthew's saying what is going on with Jesus in his ministry is the fulfillment of what was prophesied, what came before from the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to go back in a few moments' time. So he, he, he went um, to this place fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah. And what does he do? Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the of of God, is it? The easy tiger. Um, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So I'm just wanting to just portray that this is a central message for Jesus. And therefore it should be a central message for us. The kingdom of God. And I'm going to connect it back with our definition of the point of life, uh, life from God's perspective uh, at the end of this session. Let me just apply this for a moment. Um, probably four or five years ago, uh, I sat with um, the parish councillors uh, in, our, in our village here. And um, we were just having a, a bit of a chat, you know, what are your priorities? Where's the church at? And one of them said to me, James, in a nutshell, what, what's the church trying to do in this community? No problem, I said. The church in this community is trying to do the Lord's Prayer. May thy kingdom come and thy will be done here in Ashington as it is in heaven. I said, oh, okay. One or two of them had heard of the Lord's Prayer. I said, well, what does that look like? So I said, if you imagine for a minute what God is like, if he was real, what would he be like? And what would where he dwells be like? I said, well, we don't believe, you know, but if we did and he was real, then I imagine that, you know, no one would be lonely. There'd be lots of light, there'd be lots of happiness and all of those sorts of things. I said, well, that's yes, quite similar. Um, and they said, okay. So I said, well, well, then Jesus told us to pray what? That his kingdom, where he dwells and what that's like, where everyone's happy, would be on earth. That that would be here. So they're saying, okay, so, so basically you would like Ashington to just be really, really happy, just like where God is. I said, kind of, yeah. That, that's, that's kind of, it'd be pretty cool. It would be awesome to see loneliness eradicated. It would be great to see, you know, stress gone, you know, broken families restored, you know, all the things that happen when God is around. Yeah. But, um, so, and then the chairman said to me, so it sounds like what you're saying is the vision is that you would like Ashington to be the best place ever in the world. I said, yeah. <laughs> and Washington and Wiston <laughs> and everywhere else. But, but yeah, that's cool. So they said, okay, we can get on board with that. So I said, that's awesome. Sounds like we can work together. Here's the catch. The way that happens is when Jesus is king. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, where God is and where he dwells, that means he's in charge of everything there. And if he is real, and if everyone's happy where he is, because he's in charge, and that's what we're praying here, then we can 100% work together. But you need to know that the best way of making Ashington the best place on planet Earth is by Jesus becoming king of all of our lives and all of our hearts. That's, what, that's where, you know, at that moment our ways parted a bit. Okay? Is this helpful? Right. Let's back up and just see, because Matthew's pointed us backwards, let's just see where this um, comes from and where it originates and where we're at. Let's turn to Genesis uh, 2. I'm going to pick up at verse 18. Again, the reason I'm doing this, um, let me just say, I've gone to Jesus first in the Gospels um, because uh, he is the Son of God <laughs> and the kingdom of God was a key theme for him. I go back to Genesis because it functions as a sort of origins uh, basis for the Bible. 
If you want to look at how your house was built, what do you do? You go back to the plans. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis, and that's why we're going to those particular scriptures, uh, rather than just pulling out my favourite verses that I'm just trying to go to. Um, how particular scriptures function for us. Okay, what we see um, in Genesis 2 is a very intimate account of the making of creation. God forms man from the dust of the ground by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, face to face. He suddenly realised that us chaps are hopeless on our own, (laughs) which is 100% true. And a helper is needed, and a helper, open brackets, is not someone to do all the washing up, close brackets. An equal partner, someone who who is going to drive forward on whatever God's project is on planet Earth. Um, And so a helper is formed. um, And uh, out of the ground, let's pick up at verse 19. The Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see whatever he would call them or whatever the man called every living creature. That was its name. The man gave names to all cattles, uh, cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up its place with its flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. By the way, we are going to have Q&A, late, Q&A later Um, Whenever I do anything with Dylan, he always has questions about aliens and how many ribs we should all have and all of that stuff. So if that's the thing, we're going to have Q&A later on. But what I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay on topic with the theme of the kingdom, okay? Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called a woman, for out of man this one was taken. Here we go. Verse 24, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they became one flesh. They become one. This is why they're co-equal partners because they are united together. A man leaves his father and his mother. Let's remember there's only one man and one woman at this stage. So the man leaves the Lord God his father. We're all made in the likeness of him, so I guess there's some you know, maternal characteristics that God is imprinting on human beings there as well. Cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now what have we got? We've got in our origins the eternal God making Adam a human being, bringing to him a partner, that they would be one. And what would they do? They would, well, we'll find out in a moment, but they would reign over the created order, not apart from God, under his guidance, his lordship, his kingship, but they would look after the earthly realm for and on behalf of the eternal, uncreated God, and they would do that together. Okay? They'd be given authority to name and all those things. Let's now turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we'll just flesh this out. Genesis chapter 1 is a a much bigger, more macro vision of creation. Much less intimate. But epic in its scope. Verse 26, we're going to pick up that. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. Then God said, let us. We've got a hint of the three persons of God, the Trinity there. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So the uncreated God is making human beings that look like God in a created sense. So I remember doing youth work, and I used to say, what does God look like? I'd be like, ah, I hold up a mirror. He looks like 
us. Not fully and entirely, but we're made in his image. And so how you and I are made and how we function points to the reality and true nature of the uncreated God. So we're made in his image according to the likeness of God. And let them have, and here's a horrible word for the 21st century, let them have dominion over the fish of the air. Because we've become keenly aware that domineering and dominating have happened far too much in places of darkness and through structures of power. That's why we don't like that word. In the original sense of the original language in the Hebraic, it's a sense of ruling over, reigning over, and another sense which, in the best sense of the word, husbanding the earth. Now, if you've got a bad husband, slap him around the face. (laughs) Because a godly husband according to Ephesians 5, loves his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? He died. (laughs) So it's a sacrificial, laying life down, husbandry, okay? (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, On a serious level, if you have got some challenges, then get some help. (laughs) Um, But the best sense of the word husbanding something is enabling it to flourish the laying down of your life and your gifts and abilities in order that the other would flourish and shine and that's what a husband is called to do so let them have husbandry let them lay their lives down in their rulership to enable the flourishing of the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, cattle, wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, over the, over the whole of creation. So God created humankind in his image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Subdue it, reign over it, govern, rule over it in such a way that all of life can flourish and not tear tear itself apart. Who here has got a garden? What what happens to it if it's left to its own devices? There's chaos. And even the best rewilders still have a bit of work to do, don't they? Otherwise, one summer goes by and you can't even go out into the garden because it needs a little bit of husbandry to flourish and to do well and to enable life to be as it should. And uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay? So we see the role of human beings given by the eternal God The purpose is to rule and reign over the earth in the authority of God. Which is never a, hey, look how big my authority muscles are. Which is a received authority from God. A shared authority that we govern on his behalf. There's a beautiful picture built into our political system. You know, however it may be doing. The Queen rules and the Prime Minister governs on her behalf. She's the sovereign power, but she said, right, Boris or whoever is Prime Minister, with your cabinet, would you govern on my behalf to ensure that the garden of this country doesn't tear itself apart, but flourishes and thrives. Okay? Does this make sense? So we've got the eternal God giving authority to human beings. And how that looks, according to Genesis 2, we find the Father's nature beginning to be revealed to us 
by the creation of an Adam who has a bride brought to him to function as a partner in the project of God to rule the created order. Okay? Is this all right? Okay. Uh-oh. But then, it all falls apart. Let me just say one thing before we just go into that. It's really interesting that when Adam and Eve go rogue and go missing, the Lord God is walking in the garden. And so in Eden, we have the union of the eternal coming together with creation. That which is heavenly coming together with earth. That is united. The Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he's like, where are you guys? And they're all trying to find some clothes and their shame has fractured their union with God and they go missing. Anyway, it all goes wrong and the authority that's been shared with them, they give to another because the Lord said, listen, rule over the earth. On my behalf, I'm delegating this, but just do, just do this one thing. Don't eat from that tree. And when they, when they listen to the serpent, they say, okay, our authority upwards to God is now passed downwards to the serpent. And we'll listen to the, the, the truth that you would have for us, the questioning. And it comes in and they come under the authority of the serpent. The impact is the curse. And suddenly toil, pain, hardship, distress, difficulty, work becomes now not a gift but a hardship, childbearing is difficult, relationships get messed up, rulership um, comes in, in the marital relationship. The creation is affected by the authority given to the serpent. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Which, one of the things I just absolutely love is that at this point, thorns, you know, creation becomes fractured, difficult, spoiled, and one of the fruits of that is thorns. What gets pressed on Jesus' forehead when they lead him to redeem the curse and to bring, for the first time since Adam and Eve, you know, complete freedom, as you mentioned, The crown of thorns is placed on his head. The curse is placed on him. And he breaks it in the power of the cross. But it all goes wrong. Even then, as they leave and are banished from Eden, God is still there. But it's just chaos on the earth. And yet God graciously comes to Abraham again. Genesis 12. He comes to one roving, travelling shepherd. And he comes with a call of grace. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. I'll be with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to show my favoritism. My power and presence will be on you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chooses and calls Abraham and relaunches the covenant calling to the people of God through Abraham, through which every family on earth shall be blessed. Okay? So I'm just making a connection now between what fell through Adam and Eve, God still steps in with a calling, and the scope of that calling is to affect the whole planet. 
the whole creation. Now we skip on through much history, but I'm going to pick up Isaiah now, not because it's every Christian's favourite book. But particularly because the prophet Isaiah is macro in his vision of the restoration of planet Earth. You know, whereas, say, someone like Jeremiah, you have that, but he's prophesying, you know, for for much of his book, a lot of judgment on what is going on specifically with the people of God before their exile to Babylon. Isaiah is, you know, speaking about the restoration and the recovery of Project Planet Earth. Theologians would say often the book of Isaiah is almost like the Bible in one book. And even however they came up with this, how many books are in the Bible? 66. How many chapters are in Isaiah? Whoa. So it's amazing, isn't it? So you've got, you've got in microcosm the whole narrative of salvation history being portrayed through the book of Isaiah. And that's why lots of Christians love it, because it picks up the massive key themes right throughout the narrative of Scripture. Let's pick up at chapter 42, verse uh, verse 1 to 7. And here we have Isaiah prophesying about a servant of God who is going to be used by God to restore his people and to restore God's project on the earth. We'll read through some of this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is verse one. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, even the far reaches, they await his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to his people Israel to be a light to the nations. That as people look upon the servant of God and upon the people of God whom the servant will restore, that that will function as like a light being turned on for all the nations that they will see the covenant of God, the nature of God, and they will be drawn to his light, to open eyes that are blind. And here are all the wonderful things that God does, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Okay? So what I'm trying to illustrate is the covenant calling of God is for the whole planet. Now I'm going to turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 now because those of you who are observant will have remembered that when Matthew was telling us about Jesus' launch of his ministry, he referred backwards to an Old Testament scripture. And this Old Testament scripture should be familiar to us because it gets read at every carol service on the planet. Who remembers those crazy names, Zebulun and Naphtali and all of that? Here it is. The prophecy of the king who will reign. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But there's coming a time, in the latter time, the time that will come, he will make glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
Here it is. Matthew's saying, Jesus is fulfilling this. He went straight to the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Something's going to dawn, which is going to bring light, which is going to just cascade the radiance of God's light into deep darkness. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. It's going to be full of, full of abundance and blessing and joy. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. They're not going to be pressed down and beaten and trampled and oppressed any longer. You can see why the disciples thought that Jesus was going to lead a military coup in Israel, can't you? You can see why they must have thought that, because this was what they were told. The yoke of oppression is going to be broken. For all the boots of the trampling warriors, they must have thought, this is the Romans, get them out. And all the garments rolled in blood should be burned as fuel for the fire. Because this king comes to us as a child. A child has been born for us. A son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. And he is named, let's say this together, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's just pause there. This is the king who's going to rise. He's going to restore all that's lost. He's going to fulfill the covenant given to Abraham. He's going to be the one in whom light is going to be shone not only on our people, but for all nations. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. His authority shall grow continually even when the Third Reich rises and Hitler seems to be taking over the planet. Okay, it says that this king's authority will never stop growing. It will continually expand. There will be no halt to it. It will not expand until Jesus and then stop expanding. His authority will grow and grow and grow. It will grow through communism. It will grow through, you know, the, the late... 20th century, when suddenly, you know, we get addicted to hedonism and blah, 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 you know, um, jungle music and, you know, all Jack Roberts's type tunes and all of that. It will even grow continually through a global pandemic. Though the enemy might unleash carnage and spiritual confusion through everybody just slapping each other down through YouTube. And everybody being isolated in their bedrooms and whatever. The kingdom of God and the authority that is on the shoulders of the son that will be born will never stop growing. It will never stop growing. Even in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist and all of that, there will be, there's nothing that hints at the stop of the expansion and growth of the authority and government of the king who will reign. Do you believe that? This is what's having a biblical worldview. You know, and though we look at BBC News websites, though we look at the world around us, we can confidently say to the parish council, this will become the best place to live on planet Earth when Jesus' kingdom is allowed to grow here, because it's growing everywhere. It's growing everywhere. Shall we let it grow here by beginning to submit our lives to his kingship and his lordship? How do we change the world? One surrendered heart at a time to the government of God through the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ, our wonderful counsellor and our mighty God. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, who is this son who's going to be born? What's his name? Jesus. The most beautiful, precious name. Let's turn back to Matthew 4.
Matthew's trying to say, this guy, this wonderful counsellor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Emmanuel, has been born to us. And this is Jesus. And he is beginning to govern when he announces that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew's language, has come near. And that won't, for Jesus, look like getting the trampling Roman warriors physically expelled from Jewish Israel. It won't look like that. It's going to look like the sun begins to show us as he governs. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. We could insert the increase of his government, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What does he do? Curing every disease and every sickness among the people. A light has dawned. Who here has had an an ongoing illness? Like like an extended period of illness in their lives. Okay? What happens happens to your your heart when you're ill for a long time? Without extreme uh, guarding of your spirit and your heart, you just get down, don't you? (laughs) So is it not a natural thing that when light dawns, when joy dawns, when the government of the, sin, uh, of the sun comes, that he's just going to sort out the things that make us feel down. Tormenting spirits, ongoing illnesses, it's just what happens when he around. As his reign comes to restore what was lost and to, re- to restore and reverse the curse that messed up creation and messed up human life. Okay? Uh, let me have a look at the time okay we need some coffee fairly shortly so a good question to take away I'm not going to dwell on this now is what do we know of how Jesus was met and the impact he brought freedom eyes being opened light dawning inclusion for the marginalised liberation for the captives and collision with the power authorities that were around. And we're going to come, I'm going to just, let me just finish this off in a few moments. Um, Post Jesus' ascension, what vision is portrayed? Well, in Acts chapter 1, we won't turn there now, but Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, spends another 50 days telling his apostles the final little bit about what? Acts 1 verses 1 to 3, he teaches them again about the kingdom of God. And I imagine he was saying is that the fulfillment of the kingdom was established through the cross was now launched on the earth through my resurrection and you're going to get something which is going to be like fire on you and it's going to enable you to be witnesses across the whole planet. Um, And I imagine he was just sort of finishing off. This isn't something simply that... um, Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to get uh, tied up in that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and I just want to show you the point of life from God's perspective and just try and finish this off for us. Um, Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 um, because here's how it's going to play out. Okay, chapter 15. We're going to pick up at verse 20. But in fact, and he can say in fact because just above he's claimed 500 eyewitnesses have seen Jesus Raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, the first example, the first results of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, 
The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. God's plan from the beginning was Adam and Eve to rule and reign on the earth. That got tossed aside, and so he's still going to work through the same plan that he originally had for eternity and creation to be united together. And so he had to send the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, as a human being to restore what was lost. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 22, for as in all die in Adam... So how many will be made alive in Christ? All will be made alive in Christ, who acts not only as like an Adam, he acts as the last Adam. He's the one who has restored what Adam and Eve tossed aside and is now uh, recovering all that was lost in that moment. Each in his own order. Christ is the first example And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returns, all will come with him who dwell in him and the resurrection of the body will be seen on the earth. Verse 24, then comes the kingdom, uh, sorry, then comes the end. When he, which is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. So when Jesus returns right at the end, he's going to come with him fully and finally, gathering up those who've been raised with him, and he is going to come towards the Father with the kingdom of God, and he's going to submit it to him, even though he is the rightful king, and he's going to say, there, God the Father, there is the kingdom. After... He has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. When he returns, evil and death and everything that twists up human life will finally and fully be bound and destroyed and then he will present the kingdom to the Father. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's he's already reigning but he's going to reign until every single opposing force of God has come into real subjection to his kingship. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When he does that, there'll be no more death ever and ever and ever. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then they start freaking out, thinking, well, who's in subjection? Is Jesus really in charge? Is he the biggest dog? Or is God the Father the biggest dog? And da 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 So he just helps us out. And he says, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also willingly, gladly be subjected to the one, God the Father, who put all, the, all things in subjection under him so that God, the eternal, uncreated God, may be all in all. That means heaven and earth coming together and God being fully and finally, nothing hindered, nothing just spiritual, physically, materially, all in all. Okay? Let's turn, flick on to Revelation 11. do a specific session on the book of Revelation just before Christmas so um, that's in the schedule so look out for that one but I just want to show you just a couple of hooks just to hang the the story on the narrative of this Uh, Revelation 11 John sees that there's a time the trumpet's blown verse 15 sorry verse 15 in chapter 11 verse 15 the seventh angel blew his trumpet there were loud voices in heaven saying, proclaiming, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our Messiah. That means that there's only one kingdom now. There's not a clash of opposing kingdoms and we see that clash in the life of Jesus and we feel it in our lives. When I said to the parish council, Ashington will be the best place when we submit our hearts to the kingship of Jesus, it was like, 
You feel that clash, that clash of visions, that clash of worldviews, and that clash of what our hearts are committed to. But there'll be a time where the kingdom of this world is finally and fully eclipsed by the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. I'm not going to look at this now, but that begins to happen through the bride coming to the son in the marriage supper of the lamb. The original plan, the father set out Adam and Eve to rule and reign on the earth as co-partners together. God's plan in the ages was to give his son a, a partner, a bride to rule and reign with him. In Revelation 19, the bride of Christ, which is the church, has made herself ready and we are united with Jesus Christ fully and finally and then the end comes, the kingdom is established and it looks like a new heavens and a new earth. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth, heaven and the first earth had passed away. Chapter 21, verse, verse 1. And the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. The coming together, the union of heaven and earth. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And God and people come together and as we read through those scriptures, we'll see that they rule and reign forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth for all ages to come to see and catch the magnificence and majesty of who God is for all ages in all realms, demons, angels, heavens, earth, under the earth, will all behold who God is. Okay? Is everyone all right? Hence, what is the point of life from God's perspective? I hope this has just put this together for you. That an eternal God desires to give his son a co-ruler to reign with him in creation, in authority, power and glory, in a union between heaven and earth forever and ever that displays the nature and purposes of God in all realms for all ages. It's not just about healing the sick. It's so much bigger. But healing broken bodies and releasing tortured minds is one of the signs and tokens that the rule and reign of the Son of God, which is sharing with his bride, has been launched on the earth and is beginning amongst us. Thank you for joining us on the Roots podcast. To connect with our community and to find other resources, visit chanctonbury.org.uk.